This is Guns and Butter. And I, I mentioned in one of the pieces, to what degree might this have been a uh, might this have been a drill? And again, you have to kind of piece through the various uh, information that uh, that's available, which is limited, because we've just not been told by the authorities. But um, there was a, a drill that was going on in nearby Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut, on that day, uh, at that time. But uh, there's no report of, uh, of a drill going on, specifically at, uh, at the Sandy Hook um, School. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, James F. Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook, Unanswered Questions. James Tracy is an associate professor of media studies in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Tracy's work on media history, politics, and culture has appeared in a wide variety of academic journals, edited volumes, and alternative news and opinion outlets. He has written four articles analyzing the events at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14, 2012, beginning with The Newtown School Tragedy, More Than One Gunman, The Sandy Hook School Massacre, Unanswered Questions and Missing Information, Sandy Hook School Massacre Part 2, Continued Ambiguity and Augmented Realities, and Sandy Hook School Massacre Timeline. Today we focus on discrepancies in the media coverage of the mass shooting, the coroner's press conference, and the political fallout. Professor James Tracy, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. You have written four articles on the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting of December 14, 2012. There are many discrepancies in the official narrative regarding the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary. Let's start with initial reports of multiple shooters. Wasn't there eyewitness to one suspect being thrown down on the ground and placed in the front seat of a patrol car and another being chased into the woods caught on AP helicopter video? Yes, that's correct. Uh, And that's one of the um, especially disturbing and forthright things about the uh, the coverage. The aerial footage of... uh, the uh, individual being pursued into the uh, the woods by the uh, Newtown and uh, Connecticut State Police, uh, as well as at least one individual, a um, a student who saw one of the suspects uh, prone on the ground uh, outside the school in the uh, in the parking lot just momentarily. Also, the um, Initial report in the Hartford Current, one of the local uh, newspapers there, stated that there were there were two gunmen. Uh, one was uh, apprehended in the building, and a second was uh, was somewhere else uh, and had not been accounted for. And uh, this information also uh, was uh, captured audibly on the 911 dispatcher audio. The police encountering the uh, the suspects the one outside in the in the parking lot and the other uh, in the uh, in the wooded area in addition there was a uh, pedestrian I believe of uh, Newtown or Sandy Hook resident who was there who was interviewed by uh, CBS News and it's just about a 25 seconds interview but uh, they ask uh, this individual uh, what what did you see and he said they they uh, brought a, uh, a man out in handcuffs and took him to the patrol car and put him in the front seat of the patrol car, which is really rather uh, special treatment 
for someone who is, uh, is a suspect in a, uh, uh, such a grievous crime. That clip of the Newtown resident is very interesting and is available. You can find it on, on YouTube. There are various uh, YouTube channels that have posted it. Uh, there's a man behind him uh, in a, uh, looks as if he's in a, uh, in a black trench coat with glasses, and he's taking notes of what this individual is saying. So uh, based upon that, in part, uh, it, it, it would seem to me as if there's uh, some degree of coordination and concern with regard to how the story is playing out. Now, I'm not sure if that man is, uh, is with a federal agency, if, if he's undercover uh, state or local police, or if he might be with the broadcast network. We don't know. Uh, but it is, uh, it is an interesting occurrence that uh, was, uh, was pointed out to me by, I think, a comment on uh, one of the YouTube channels, uh, an observation, I think, by, by another viewer. And you, uh, you mentioned the 911 police dispatch discussion. With, now, this, uh, this audio was recorded with, what, the police speaking to responders? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and the call came in at, uh, at 9.35 a.m. or 9.35.50 when they received a, um, a call from the school that uh, there was shooting heard and uh, not necessarily that a, I don't believe the shooter had been, been encountered, but the shooting was, uh, was heard. And uh, this is also audio that is available online. It was posted on, on a, a few different uh, YouTube channels. Uh, one YouTube channel has it in its entirety. And also Fox News, the uh, evening of December 14th at uh, 7.13 p.m., Fox News aired excerpts of that uh, that recording, but that's the only time that I believe of uh, you know national news media really do uh, look at that recording. It's something that's kind of referred to as you know being memory hold. It's something that just does not um, does not continue with the uh, with the unfolding narrative. The narrative uh, changes to a significant degree in the ensuing ensuing days. Uh, also, the audio of the 911 dispatch is scrambled at various points. So we can't tell uh, the identities of the uh, individuals, uh, the individual who was uh, apprehended uh, in the parking lot or the individual who was apprehended in the woods. Well, that's right. Then that is evidence of the audio having been scrubbed, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, looks, it, uh, it sounds that way. What initially aroused your suspicion regarding this most recent shooting spree? You wrote uh, an article on it uh, very early on. I, um, I, I became interested in, in part by looking at various uh, alternative news media vis-a-vis uh, -vis major mainstream outlets and seeing such a contrast. That is part of what I study. I'm a media studies uh, professor I primarily um, look at and, and teach media criticism, uh, the relationship between the media and public opinion. I'm uh, an affiliate of Project Censored, which uh, is somewhere out in the neck of your woods there. So as a media critic and a scholar, uh, I naturally, I guess, uh, gravitated towards uh, the coverage of an event like this that uh, seems so unusual, and the alternative news coverage and criticism 
contrasted sharply with the mainstream um, coverage, the coverage by the, you know, the corporate media, the CNN and Fox News, MSNBC, and, uh, and the major uh, broadcast networks. It, it looked to me as if, and I'm just, you know, one observer, uh, but um, I've looked at kind of a lot of these types of events, and it looked to me as if this was something that was especially orchestrated in terms of the coverage itself, in terms, in terms of the corporate news coverage. I mean, I think that they have it down to a kind of formula uh, covering these sorts of tragic events, shootings and the like, uh, where we go from the from the accounts of the terror and the carnage immediately to grieving, uh, and we defer to 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 the law enforcement authorities, uh, to the uh, government authorities for closure of the uh, particular event. We don't really uh, look beyond that. And when I say we, I'm talking about the journalists that are the eyes and the ears and so forth for the public. Uh, they are they're they're not doing their job, or they're not being allowed to do their job by their editors and by the by the managers at these uh, major outlets. You take, for example, uh, the press conference, 15-minute press conference with H. Wayne Carver, who is the medical examiner for the state of Connecticut. 33 years experience. Uh, this person is uh, highly versed in uh, in autopsies and so forth, and yet we don't really know a great deal from that press conference uh, because he's uncertain uh, as well. And that's exhibited if you look uh, more closely at the overall footage. Now, if you just take a few sound bites out of it, <laughs> of course it sounds official and so forth. But if you actually look at his whole delivery, and this is one of the things that I addressed in one of my pieces, or if you transcribe it uh, and really look at that and think about it and analyze it, looks to me as if there's something more going on here, and that also is something that um, gave me some concern, that there, uh, there, there might be you know, various levels of things that are, that are going on here, and this individual is, is rather, uh, rather uncomfortable. But nevertheless, this is an authority that is deferred to, and uh, so uh, reporters unfortunately don't look beyond that. I think that at the same time, uh, listening to that interview and viewing that interview, uh, or the press conference, reporters did have questions and did exhibit skepticism. But that did not emerge in the coverage of the event. Well, exactly, yes. Uh, his testimony, this medical examiner, uh, was very curious. I'd like to maybe go into more detail about that in a minute. Speaking of the media, are there discrepancies between the media accounts of the shooter's entrance into the school and the reality of how it could or could not have happened? Well, yes. Uh, the journalists that were initially on the scene were the was the Newtown Bee, which is a small weekly newspaper there. And uh, there were a couple of the, I think they just have uh, an editor and a co-editor, and uh, they were there on the scene. And in fact, the co-editor uh, Shannon Hicks, I believe her name is. She took the uh, well-known picture of the evacuation of about 15 or 16 students. So they uh, initially report that uh, Dawn uh, Hawksprung, who is the principal of Sandy Hook Elementary, she gave a, a, an account of the, of the shooter's entry into the building. 
But then that narrative was changed because it uh, it turned out that apparently she was a, a person who was uh, a fatality, who was uh, who was killed upon the the gunman's entry into the building. So that initial account was changed, and um, the Newtown Bee never did tell its readers in the correction who they actually spoke to, or if they spoke to anyone. Uh, we just uh, we don't know. So that's another anomaly. One of uh, one of many in the uh, in the coverage. Well, now in the media coverage, isn't the shooter supposed to have shown up, you know, wearing a ski mask and black clothing and a vest, and shot his way through these uh, a double door glass entryway into the building? Then, when was the nine one one call placed? Uh, the nine one one call was placed at about uh, between nine thirty five and nine thirty six a m according to the audio record that uh, that I've looked at and uh, it was it was around this time or or shortly beforehand when the shooter uh, entered the facility uh, but that's another thing as well. There are conflicting reports on whether or not um, there was any sound of him entering the building because the, the subsequent reports uh, were that there were six shots fired at uh, the glass door in front, and that is how he got through. He shot with a rifle and, and got through that way, although there are reports prior to this that state that there is no gunfire heard until uh, the gunman is in the building. So the reports conflict depending on who is being quoted and so forth. And another thing that's, that's also of concern is that there should be video evidence of this and, and, and photographic evidence of, of this as well. Do you think the uh, major media, especially being tremendously voracious about these sorts of uh, details, would, uh, would demand this? And uh, the school had just gotten a new security system with video coverage throughout the facility, that's my understanding, and so that uh, video coverage must have been captured and recorded and yet uh, none of that has surfaced. We don't uh, have any of that. And um, that's a real concern because that would, of course, reveal how many shooters there were, if there were more than one, and the, uh, the way in which the, the mass shooting took place and transpired. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook, Unanswered Questions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's talk about the weaponry that was supposedly used. Now, I'm quoting from one of your articles in your article on the timeline. Quote, police say the shooter is dead and two weapons were recovered from him. Quote, the source says one weapon recovered is a Glock and the other is a Sig Sauer. That a report in the late morning of the, of the day of... And then later on in the afternoon, it says third gun, a two two three Bushmaster, now reported found at the scene. So initially, the claim was being made that this young man, the 19, 20-year-old that they're accusing of this, that he just had two handguns on him when he was found dead. Is that right? Yes, uh, that's what uh, CNN reported uh, late that morning. And, uh, and then the, uh, the storyline changed subsequent to that, yeah, uh, to, include the, uh, to include the rifle. 
And then the, uh, the storyline changed further that the rifle was the only weapon that, uh, that was used and, and that he had. At one point, there's also a report of, of additional weapons. So altogether, I think six weapons were at one time reported at one point within 24 hours or so of the incident. And then there's no further mention of these uh, additional makes of uh, firearms. I believe they're rifles that were referred to. These uh, items, these uh, weapons are in addition to the shotgun that was allegedly recovered, uh, and there's video coverage of that, uh, recovered from the uh, apparently the trunk of the car that uh, Lanza drove to the, to the school that evening. I think that's uh, nighttime coverage. So altogether, you've got uh, six weapons at one point or another emerged in the reports. And uh, at the end of the day, it was reduced down to the one Bushmaster 223 caliber. Now, the Bushmaster 223 caliber, is that a rifle or a shotgun? That's a rifle. It is a semi-automatic uh, army-style assault weapon. But you know, that's another thing that people are frequently get confused with, uh, what is an assault weapon. Uh, an assault weapon technically is something that uh, that shoots automatically, and uh, most of the weapons that are that are available in the United States at gun stores and so forth are semi-automatic, and that's what the uh, gunman reportedly had was a semi-automatic uh, weapon, a high power, um, 22 I believe 22 caliber weapon, and then I believe that uh, the uh, Glock was reported to be a uh, 40 or 50 millimeter, and then the Sig Sauer was a, uh, was a 9 millimeter. Yeah. And you mentioned the three other guns. Uh, here's a quote from one of your articles. Three other guns have also been recovered, but it was not clear where they were found. The official told AP they were a Henry repeating rifle, an Enfield rifle, and a shotgun. Right, yeah. So the uh, Henry repeating and the Enfield, in addition to the shotgun, that would make six, uh, six guns. Uh, that conflicts with earlier reports that uh, Nancy Lanza had uh, had three weapons, and uh, that she kept them uh, kept them locked up. That she um, she possessed three weapons. So we don't know where the uh, where the other um, other weapons came from. How did the gunman fire so many shots in such a little time? I mean, we're just talking about what five or ten minutes at the most, if that. Yeah, I believe that uh, I estimated six to seven minutes, and um, that's a good question. Uh, the reports uh, indicate that there were a hundred or more rounds fired, and uh, this um, individual can't be more than about a hundred or 125 pounds. Uh, he has uh, body armor on. Uh, he has uh, these. Um, Overalls underneath that, uh, he has uh, hundreds and hundreds of rounds of, of weapons, and he's got a mask on, so he's tremendously weighed down. Uh, that's, that's an awful lot of weight for a, a fairly slight, slightly built individual to actually be able to carry around like that. So that's another thing that I, I think that some observers have, uh, have pointed to. I haven't pointed at that uh, specifically in any of my work, but it is it does suggest uh, that, um, that there were uh, professionals involved in this. Uh, and that, you know, that also one has to, has to point out that, um, or question whether or not Lanza is really capable of uh, 
this expert, I guess, uh, military-style touch with regard to the, the shooting itself, whether or not there were not others there that might have been uh, might have been more proficient in that regard. Well, yes, that sounds like some very, very expert shooting. Well, how many people were killed? 28? 27? Well, there were 20 uh, children, and then there were six adults, and uh, there was uh, Lanza, whose body was um, apparently recovered at the scene, and also uh, his mother, Nancy Lanza, who was back at, the, um, back at the home, back at the residence. And each victim, of course, was shot, according to the medical examiner, multiple times, right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Were, were the medical personnel turned away, from the, turned away from the crime scene? What was that all about? There were reports of a uh, man who was with the, I believe, the Sandy Hook uh, Fire Department, and um, his name was Bill Halstead. I think he's the fire chief, and he appeared on Good Morning America, I believe, uh, a day or two following the event, December 15th or December 16th, and he uh, talked about their setting up uh, outside and uh, really not being able to, to treat any more than, I think, one individual uh, there are reports of other responders uh, showing up as well, and uh, they seemed uh, somewhat uh, frustrated that their services were not better utilized than they were. I believe that one or two of the injured children were taken to the nearby Danbury Hospital, and there was an attempt to treat them there. But that's also another question and concern. How were these people uh, pronounced uh, pronounced dead? What uh, medical expertise was there to uh, to actually do that? That's um, that's something else that uh, is open to question. So then, the medical personnel were not allowed inside the school. Is that right? Apparently not, and uh, it was primarily law enforcement that uh, that were in there. That's uh, my understanding. Now, perhaps the law enforcement had some medical personnel on staff. But uh, it, it looks as if uh, most of the activity took place during the, the autopsy uh, that uh, Carver had, uh, had presided over. Were there early reports indicating that federal authorities were already on the scene as the 911 call was received? Uh, there were some reports that, uh, that there were, there were um, federal officials that uh, were there, which is uh, also a point of concern. Uh, how is it that uh, there was an awareness that uh, something like this was going to was going to transpire? And I, I mentioned in one of the pieces, to what degree might this have been a uh, might this have been a drill? And again, you have to kind of piece through the various uh, information that uh, that's available, which is limited because we've just not been told by the authorities. But um, there was a, a drill that was going on in nearby Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut, on that day uh, at that time. But uh, there's no report of, uh, of a drill going on, specifically at, uh, at the Sandy Hook um, School. Right. I'd like to uh, uh, quote something from one of your articles on that. Uh, quote, on the same day, the State of Connecticut Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection in association with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, were carrying out a, quote, planning for the needs of children in disaster drill in nearby Bridgeport, Connecticut, as, as you have uh, as you've pointed out. Is there a gag order on the families of the slain? Have we heard from any of them? Well, we've heard from five of the parents 
out of a total of, uh, of what, 40. As far as I am aware of being interviewed, there, were, there might be four parents. There's the father of the teacher by the name of, of Rousseau, a um, child, uh, McConnell, and uh, her parents were interviewed uh, together, I believe, on CNN. And um, the Rousseau party, uh, they had stated uh, and, and complained. She was originally from um, Canada, a uh, 30-year-old woman who was teaching there. And her father complained to uh, the Canadian television, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that uh, he was unable to, uh, to see the body. So he was very frustrated about that. Uh, and that's something that a couple uh, parents of uh, uh, one of the slain girls, uh, the McConnell family, they were also not allowed to uh, to see the uh, see the body. So those are those are concerns. The um, coroner, H. Wayne Carver, said that uh, they had identified the uh, children to the parents through photography, and that's what he had told the press on the 15th of December. So we wonder whether or not uh, the parents at any time were able to see the deceased uh, at, the, uh, at the funeral home. I, th I think that there are reports of some of the uh, funerals being open casket, but um, I don't think that all of them were. So in addition, you know, the um, coroner talked, for example, about um, you know, the, the bodies were taken out in the middle of the, of the night and uh, sort of undercover. So there was, uh, you know, no footage or anything of the like of that either. I believe the, the night of the, the 14th and early morning of the 15th. So there's just these ellipses and, uh, and anomalies that are riddled throughout the, uh, the coverage when one looks a little bit more closely. What else was peculiar about Connecticut's top medical examiner, H. Wayne Carver II's press conference the day after the shootings? His answers to the questions of the reporters were somewhat strange, weren't they? Yeah, uh, not only his answers uh, verbatim, but also his uh, behavior, his mannerisms. He seemed very uncomfortable. And this is an individual who has a great deal of expertise, over 30 years' experience as a pathologist. So it really seemed rather unusual uh, one of the questions, and there were simple questions that were asked by reporters in some cases, and I think that it reached a crescendo in the latter part of the, the press conference. One question was, how many boys and how many girls among the 20 children? He couldn't answer that. He said, I don't know. Now, here's someone who's, again, a professional. He's presided over this, uh, this entire post-mortem operation, and he's not able to answer something like that. Uh, there's something very questionable here. Other questions, for example, that a coroner should know, the amount of time between when uh, Nancy Lanza was uh, killed at her residence and uh, when the occurrence at the school took place. Uh, that's something that I, I would think a coroner would be able to answer or at least uh, make an, an estimation. And he evaded that uh, completely. Uh, the uh, footage is also, of course, available online. To get back, looking at the news coverage, thinking about that, we just got sound bites. And it sounds very impressive when you hear uh, 3 to 11 gunshot wounds per victim, says Connecticut's top medical examiner, Carver. Okay. But again, if you look at that delivery, 
Dr. Carver seems really rather apprehensive and uncomfortable. And he's surrounded by the Connecticut State Police as well. At one point, they actually do correct the reporter who says, well, um, the crime was committed with handguns. And uh, J. Paul Vance, the lieutenant for uh, the Connecticut State Police, who most people know the the image of and so forth uh, because of his, his many appearances on television, he corrected the reporter and said, that's not true, sir. It was a rifle. So that's, the, I think, probably the first time that the story changes, and that's at 3.45 p.m. on December 15th. But he corrects the reporter almost in mid-sentence. It was not uh, the pistols that were used. It was the rifle. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook, Unanswered Questions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, didn't the coroner also make some strange comment? I don't remember it exactly, something that you highlighted about how he hoped this whole thing didn't come back and crash down on the heads of Sandy Hook residents or something? Yeah, one has to uh, interpret that. It it seems uh, inexplicable and out of context. I didn't really understand. He said uh, on the behalf of, uh, of his staff, and uh, the people of, uh, of Newtown that he hopes that this doesn't come crashing down. So it's sort of a, a cryptic remark. I, I don't know really what to, what to make of it, but we can infer uh, that, again, he's uh, uncertain about uh, what, is, what has transpired. And you couple that with his, uh, his performance and his uh, remarks to the, to the press, and uh, there's more, more cause for questions. Now, with regard uh, to the at least two other suspects that were apprehended, have these arrests been scrubbed from the media narrative? Do we hear any more about them? Now, they've been almost completely uh, eliminated. And uh, I saw a piece on this, one of the few pieces I did see on this, that I guess it really did pique my interest. That's something that you asked earlier. Uh, there's a... Um, uh, health science and uh, investigative writer Mike Adams, uh, who's based out of uh, Austin, Texas, and uh, he runs the Natural News site, and he did some wonderful analyses of the Aurora, Colorado uh, mass shooting, the theater shooting back on July 20th, and uh, he wrote a piece that wasn't terribly lengthy, but he wrote a very good analysis of the fact that, as was the case with these other events, the coverage is being altered so that these uh, additional suspects, we don't, you know, we don't know for certain whether or not they were involved, but they're suspects and they're worthy of scrutiny, that um, they, drop out of the, uh, they drop out of the coverage altogether, and uh, there's no additional, uh, no additional trace of them. Right, and that's particularly true of uh, not only the Sandy Hook Elementary shooting, but the, um, the Batman murders, uh, the James right. Holmes, uh, the kid that they they're accusing there. Right. The similarity there, particularly with the Aurora shooting, of the uh, possible uh, second and third suspects dropping out of the media narrative. Yeah. There were uh, eyewitnesses who claimed that uh, they saw, for example, tear gas canisters coming from uh, the opposite side of the theater where Holmes apparently was. Uh, so that he had uh, one or more 
accomplices. I haven't looked at that case as much so, but what I have looked at, it's uh, in some ways mirrors what took place at Newtown in that uh, police apprehended uh, Holmes. They did not see him commit the crime, but he's in this uh, military-style gear, uh, body armor and, uh, and the like uh, with weapons in tow, and the conclusion is drawn that, uh, that he committed the act. Now, there are events like this. I, I know that this might sound a little bit uh, conspiratorial, but uh, there is the possibility of setting up uh, patsies, and uh, it wouldn't be the first time that something like that is done. With uh, regard to Holmes, you know, the police encountered him. They, they saw that he was tremendously sedate, uh, placid. It seemed unusual for someone who had committed such a, uh, such a tremendous crime, such a heinous crime inside the theater. So there's the suggestion there that he may have been drugged or something of the like. Perhaps he didn't uh, uh, carry out the, the murders at all. Perhaps it was a professional team. And, uh, he was uh, put out uh, behind the theater in the aftermath and, uh, and was, uh, was taken away by police and, and charged and so forth. Uh, it also seems odd that um, he would have the expertise to, uh, to booby trap his apartment, his flat, in such a way. Uh, there were these exotic explosives and so on and so forth. He was uh, a graduate student with fairly limited means. There were thousands of dollars of uh, explosives and weaponry and so on and so forth. So it just seems, uh, it seems rather, rather odd. But again, if, uh, if we don't have uh, journalists who are uh, looking at these things and journalistic institutions and questioning these things more so, uh, I think that there's an impulse among the public, we're all human, uh, to grieve, to immediately go into that mode, and uh, really to not uh, ask the, the questions that need to be asked, uh, especially if we're not prompted by, um, by the media we depend on for our information. In less than 24 hours after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, the events were being used by many politicians, including the president, for a political agenda to go after uh, gun owners. And of course, there's been much discussion about the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This is very important. I just wanted to read the Second Amendment because it's actually, it looks like it's only one sentence. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So there's a big hullabaloo going on uh, in the media and with politicians and with celebrities and with uh, New York City Mayor Bloomberg, etc., to call for new gun laws. Uh, what do you think of all of this? Well, uh... I think that uh, if we are going to have a um, have a debate on uh, on revising uh, the gun laws, uh, reintroducing an assault weapons ban that uh, might be more stringent than the one that was introduced uh, and passed uh, in the early 90s and allowed to expire in in 2004, then um, we should know more about these uh, mass shootings. Uh, we should have a, uh, a full investigation about what actually took place before we begin any sort of uh, any sort of debate along those lines. And 
I think that's that's something that uh, is warranted. I don't think that that's uh, an extreme sort of request. Whether whether one is for or against uh, stricter gun control measures. Now, Connecticut has one of the strongest uh, sets of gun control laws uh, in the union, and uh, that didn't prevent uh, this crime. So is there an agenda that is larger than this, where this is something that is, is just being used? I think that's a, um, that's a more important question. You had the president come out. It was uh, less than six hours after the event had taken place. Uh, talking about how we, you know, we can't tolerate this, we need to change this, and so forth. Well, this is before the victims were even um, taken care of with regard to autopsies and processed uh, for uh, for burial. Uh, so it's it seems rather uh, rather quick uh, to begin uh, any sort of debate along those lines, or to really even even broach uh, the matter. That's my take, anyway. Well, statistically, where does the U.S. stand in relation to other countries in terms of death by firearms? Uh, it's it's 28, uh, even though the United States has a greater degree of um, uh, gun ownership than uh, most other countries. Countries that have a higher percentage that rank up there further, I think, for example, Panama, uh, Bermuda, Jamaica, some of these these countries that uh, have higher instance of um, murder by um, by firearms, they far surpass uh, the United States, and yet we have a um, higher percentage of, of ownership. Another thing along these lines is that the stricter gun control laws were brought to the fore in Australia and Britain after after events similar to this that were really not not investigated to the degree that they actually could have been, but rather they uh, sparked a rather heated debate and a, a rush to revise the laws that uh, I think was to a significant degree emotional. And I think that that is, uh, is, is what is taking place here. Uh, on a related note, there's also, um, I think, a rush towards uh, greater access to mental health. Well, what does that mean? If it meant, for example, uh, psychoanalysis or uh, some sort of uh, couch therapy, then it it might be uh, worthwhile. But what that usually more often than not means is a resorting to and prescribing uh, antidepressants and uh, atypical antipsychotics. And uh, these drugs are known and proven to cause homicidality and suicidality. Uh, and so there is, ironically, I guess, uh, this move to for greater mental health. The American Psychiatric Association is coming out with its uh, its new diagnostic manual, uh, I believe, next year. So they're you know they're eager to go ahead and use that and and try to screen as as many people as possible. Even though, of course, uh, one does not provide a urine or a blood sample or anything of the like, or uh, they're not given an X-ray uh, for these types of diagnoses. They're, to a significant degree, subjective on the behalf of the practitioner. Now, also with regard to media coverage, there are posted online, and probably they appeared on television as well, media interviews with, uh, quote, family members at the scene 
of the shooting at uh, at the Sandy Hook Elementary. Are the people at the scene who were interviewed by the media identified? No. Almost none of them are. They're not identified in the multitude of photographs that uh, came out of the event, nor are they identified in the interviews themselves. And uh, I I found that also especially curious. And uh, you had um, children, you know, a handful of children who were were interviewed. They were interviewed uh, a number of times on different uh, different occasions saying the same or, or similar things. Now, if one were a parent and their child had gone through an event like that, I have children as well, I can't imagine that would be lingering around to, uh, to provide uh, interviews with, um, with the news media. You know? uh, but you have the same individuals as well as adults uh, that, uh, that are being interviewed uh, repeatedly. Again, there are only a handful of these, uh, these interviews that I've, uh, that, that I've come across that were interviewed on the scene. So that, that's unusual. And um, the scene itself, there are, there are few, few pedestrians, even though this, uh, you know, this involved a mass evacuation of a school. We're talking 600 students and uh, at least 600 parents. And all of these individuals were supposed to uh, rendezvous at the fire station. But there's very little uh, video evidence or photographic evidence, for example, the interior of the station or even the exterior, of there being a, um, a, a mob scene there, for lack of a better term. I've not come across any. Uh, so that's another thing that, um, that, was a, um, that was a concern. I'm speaking with Associate Professor of Media Studies and investigative journalist James Tracy. Today's show, Sandy Hook, Unanswered Questions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, yes, it's all quite odd. When we first began to speak, you mentioned a photo that has appeared all over the place of maybe 12 to 24 students with a few teachers sort of in a conga line. We've seen this hundreds of times, but no real other photos of an evacuation, right? That's right. Yeah, uh, there were two photos emerged from um, a series of photos that one of the Newtown B photographers, or editors rather, uh, took while entering the uh, parking lot. There's another one of a, uh, of a Connecticut State um, a state police officer, I believe. And that originally appeared on the Newtown B site. That since been removed. I did come across it somewhere else. But uh, the most famous, the most well-known photograph is the one of the uh, 15 or 16 children uh, who are in the, uh, the, the Congo line, apparently proceeding to the, to the fire station. But that's the only photograph uh, that there is. And... Um, Again, one would think that there would be additional uh, photographic evidence or video evidence uh, of that. We see a lot of emergency personnel. Uh, we see a lot of, um, you know, fire department personnel. We see uh, law enforcement, uh, lots of automobiles, trucks, and things of the like. But uh, it, it just seems uh, odd. The, the pedestrians are so sparse. Um, Have you found anything that suggests at least a partially staged event in Newtown? For instance, what are crisis actors? I never heard of this before. Well, it's a very uh, 
controversial proposal, obviously, because this is a uh, highly tragic and emotional uh, event that's been presented in a particular way uh, and the like. But when I, when I began looking at this more closely, I came across uh, some information online. Actually, there is at least one uh, acting group out of, uh, out of, I believe, Denver, Colorado, called the Crisis Actors, and uh, it's crisisactors.org. And they, they, they provide their services all over the country uh, in um, shooting, mass shooting drills. And uh, they can fulfill any number of roles, and uh, work in, they work in coordination with the uh, federal and uh, state and local authorities in charge of, uh, of such a drill. So that um, was <laughs> in the back of my mind uh, when I proceeded to look at some of this coverage, and I did uh, write one piece on it. And I did not come out and assert, this is a staged event, uh, but I asked a bunch of questions. You know, what if this was? What evidence is there that uh, suggests that it may be? And um, I, I, think that, um, I think that some people found that found that claim, and it really wasn't a claim, it really was more questions than anything else, but they found, uh, found that claim to be outrageous, because it does call into question, you know, your whole, your whole worldview and basis of reality, you know? I mean, uh, if what the media is presenting to us is not real, then what is? It makes people feel, uh, feel very uncomfortable and uncertain. I was interviewed for a newspaper here in South Florida just uh, recently, and uh, that uh, that article in part came up and the reporter really wanted for me to come out and say that I thought that the event was staged. Well, I don't know. Uh, I'm simply asking questions. Is there uh, the possibility of that? Well, we know that there are these crisis actors uh, that do provide their services. We know that there are only a handful of people who are interviewed, uh, you know, on the scene. And uh, so coupling those things together, as well as, the, in some cases, the rather unusual accounts of, uh, of some individuals. There was uh, apparently a Sandy Hook resident by the name of Gene Rawson who told a rather, in my view, a rather implausible story that he just came across six of the Sandy Hook students in his front lawn while he was feeding his cats. Well, this was in, apparently in the afternoon of the event. You have... Uh, a shooting like this, and you've got the place crawling with law enforcement. And that was evident in the footage, right? Uh, and this individual says that there are just six children who apparently ran out of the classroom uh, and, um, and more or less were driven by a bus driver to his residence, and he allowed them to come inside and, and play and tell of their account. Uh, that seems surreal, and it, uh, it's something whereby I think that the media got a great deal of, uh, of play out of it, uh, but uh, it's something that I found rather um, unrealistic. Yes, it's very strange because uh, in such an instance, you would think he would immediately call authorities. Absolutely, uh, and, uh, and want to... Um, apparently get the children to the fire station, which is where uh, the parents were supposed to, um, to meet up with, uh, with their children if they did not pick them up at the school. There's also that bizarre video of a family being interviewed 
the mother, she was being asked by media how she found out about the shooting at the school, and she claimed that she got a text message from CBS. Yes, and uh, that was something that was edited together, I think, by uh, by an individual who put it on YouTube, and I, I found that unfortunate that I, I would like to have seen the full the entire interview, uh, but it was something that was edited uh, a bit. But she does ask that uh, that she uh, that she got this uh, she got this uh, text from from CBS. So that's another thing that would suggest to me that well, this person uh, then must be somehow affiliated with and taking their cues from the uh, the networks. Uh, the video I think was titled uh, Newtown or Sandy Hook Bloopers. Uh, and there are a number, it's about a, a three-minute uh, video that you can find. But I, I found that um, rather uh, rather unusual as well. Well, do you think it's possible if this video was edited, that it was edited to make her sound like she was saying something that she really wasn't saying? No, she. Uh, I believe that she said CBS. But they cut away quickly after that uh, to, I believe, another uh, another interview more or less. So uh, we don't we don't get the uh, the anchor's response, and maybe they just maybe at that time they just cut the uh, uh, cut the tape or cut the uh, you know turned off the camera. Uh, we're um, I'm uncertain with regard to that. Oh, I see. But you do think that in viewing the video that she did indeed make that comment that that she wasn't that we, wasn't stitched together. No, no, it was not. No, that was I, I think that 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 was. Uh, that interview interview flowed all the way through until it was edited there after her saying, uh, after her saying, and then I got a text from CBS, and she appears again. Her and her her uh, daughter appear again, uh, being interviewed by another uh, network outlet. I believe it was a, um, a local network affiliate, and there's also the way in which that is um, is put together the interview. That interview, as well as some others, uh, with children, for example, uh, they are being they are being to some degree led in their lines. Uh, they're being they're they're being given cues uh, or reminders as to to what to say. At least it seemed like that to me. For example, there was uh, an interview with uh, one uh, one child, and uh, a CNN reporter uh, who was interviewing her said before she said it, said, oh, well, there must have been a lot of crying and screaming and so forth in the school. Is that right? And the child said, oh, yes, yes, there was. Uh, So, you know, journalists aren't supposed to do that, obviously, but uh, here we see it uh, on the video. Well, Professor Tracy, uh, is there anything else you think that is very important for people to uh, know about this latest uh, tragic shooting incident? Well, I, um, I think, you know, as is the case with events of, you know, a greater magnitude uh, such, as, uh, such as 9-11, uh, I think that a, a great many people are likely unwilling to actually, uh, to actually go in the direction of asking deeper questions as to what, uh, what exactly took place, you know. Uh, they uh, don't, want to, don't want to actually consider that. Uh, we do know that uh, there was a uh, uh, Operation Gladio that took place 
uh, NATO stay-behind armies throughout Europe uh, from the late 1960s through the early to mid-1980s, where you had uh, citizens uh, that uh, in various countries, including Italy and uh, Germany, that were being uh, attacked by uh, paramilitary groups, and there was there was an attempt to create a strategy of tension. Uh, there are a couple of books, a couple of fairly good books that have been written uh, about this. It's not really well known in the United States. There's almost no press coverage of it. Uh, but uh, that's something in the historical sense that comes to mind when we see uh, events uh, such as this, what are referred to as uh, false flag events. I think, you know, folks on the... Um, Many progressives and those on the left really don't want to go there, go in that direction or, uh, or talk about that, uh, especially if someone is a journalist or a scholar. They risk being called, uh, you know, a dealer in conspiracy theories and so forth. Um, but I think that we have to abandon these terms uh, and really look at these, uh, these, these occurrences and so forth uh, more closely, have the courage to do so. Uh, and I... Given my uh, my my capacity and so forth as a as a professor, I think that's something that um, I should do. Uh, study the media and public opinion and and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and these things are of uh, tremendous significance, uh, certainly um, at uh, at this point in time. And I think that you know events uh, such as. Um, uh, 9/11 and uh, the decision to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq. These are, uh, these are some of the most important events of the past half century, and so they require, I think, uh, greater scrutiny than, uh, than I think that they've probably been apportioned by, uh, by many of us who consider ourselves to be uh, you know, intellectuals, whether it's uh, journalistic or, or academic. And finally, why do you think that uh, so much of the public is so willing to go along with the corporate media narrative in in so many of these uh, cataclysmic events? It's a big question. Um, I, I think in part that it, it is it is cultural, uh, and uh, it has to do in part, I think, with our educational system. I think that to a significant degree we are not taught to think critically to the extent that we actually should, uh, and there is an impulse to defer to authority, authority figures and uh, authority uh, official institutions and the like, uh, rather than actually uh, look beyond that. Uh, and um, so I think that's, that's, you know, in a nutshell, why perhaps we, um, we don't inquire to the, uh, to the extent that we should. There are, you know, additional uh, uh, answers. I think that um, you know people don't. Uh, these are unpleasant things. They don't want to uh, think about them. If they're in a position, as I was previously saying, if they're in a position uh, such as being a, a journalist or a, uh, academic or a public intellectual of some sort, uh, you uh, really do call your judgment and your sense of reason and so forth in the question. If you actually begin to ask questions uh, beyond the pale. Uh, the, the term uh, conspiracy theorist is something that was actually devised in the late 1960s by the CIA. Uh, the um, author and professor uh, Lance DeHaven Smith talks about this uh, in uh, a forthcoming book that he has uh, coming out where he examines, he's the individual that came out with the concept of state crimes against democracy. Uh, and so I think that that is a, um, an important observation to keep in mind 
that these types of terms are used to really discipline uh, debate and discourse and opinion and, and steer it, channel it in a, uh, in a certain direction. And I think it's something that we need to be aware of. Professor James Tracy, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. I've been speaking with James F. Tracy. Today's show has been Sandy Hook, Unanswered Questions. James Tracy is an associate professor of media studies in the School of Communication and Multimedia Studies at Florida Atlantic University. Tracy is editor of Union for Democratic Communications journal Democratic Communique and a contributor to Censored 2013. He has written four articles analyzing the events at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14, 2012, beginning with The Newtown School Tragedy, More Than One Gunman of December 20th, The Sandy Hook School Massacre, Unanswered Questions and Missing Information of December 25th, Sandy Hook School Massacre Part 2, Continued Ambiguity and Augmented Realities, of January 4th, and Sandy Hook School Massacre Timeline of January 7th, 2013. Visit his blog at memoryholeblog.com. That's M-E-M-O-R-Y-H-O-L-E-B-L-O-G dot C-O-M, memoryholeblog.com. His articles are also posted at globalresearch.ca. Special thanks to Joan Malarick. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G.